Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. This morning we're in our third part in our series Genesis 1 to 11, a prelude. And we're just looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so in part three, we're in Genesis chapter three. And I want to begin by reading two stories alongside each other. One is from Genesis, the other is from the Gospel of Matthew. They're both stories about temptation. And for many of us, they'll be very, very familiar stories. The temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And if we read them next to each other, we'll start to see some similarities. And of course, at some point, we'll notice some differences. The serpent says to the woman, did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? And Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. For it is written, said the tempter to Jesus in the wilderness, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all their authority and splendor has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, they will all be yours. You will be like God, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. The story we're going to watch unfold this morning is not a cartoon about a squabble over a piece of fruit. It's not about breaking the divine diet plan or flouting some arbitrary rule. Nor is it, as some people think of it, a story for children. This is, in fact, a story about the deep-seated human anxiety around our own power and freedom and the way that this shapes our relationships. The story begins in the garden. Adam and Eve are placed there and given a vocation. They're called to tend and care for the garden. In other words, from the start, God is willing to entrust the care of his creation to human beings. So we're called, we're given a vocation, expected to share in the creative work of God himself. Can you even imagine a higher calling? Entrusted with the creation. And in this garden, in which they are given this calling, they've also been given abundant permission. God says you are free to eat from the fruits of any of the trees in the garden. They're given permission to enjoy everything the garden has to offer. Well, almost everything. Because there are two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not told why they are 
there are two trees in the first place. In fact, we're not really told much about them at all. And we might wish that such dangerous trees had never been put there in the first place. But there they are, in the centre of the garden. And by placing them in the centre of the garden, a decision, a choice has been placed at the centre of this story. The tree of life does appear in a few other places, which might tell us something more. In the book of Proverbs, the tree of life is a motif used to refer to anything which enhances and celebrates life. So we find it is related to righteousness in Proverbs, to fulfill desires and the gentle tongue. And in Revelation, the tree of life refers to fellowship and relationship with God. That's the tree of life. As for the tree of knowledge, well, it isn't mentioned anywhere else. The only thing we do know is that Adam and Eve are prohibited from eating from it. So there it is, a garden in which humanity is given a vocation. They're given abundant permission and they are given a single prohibition. Vocation, permission, prohibition. And the scene is set. And then we read, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other creatures the Lord God had made. The serpent has probably been overanalyzed. It doesn't actually say it's the devil or a phallic symbol. As C.S. Lewis points out, the serpent in Genesis is a device to introduce a new agenda to humanity. And so the serpent asks, did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden or you will die? A couple of observations here. First of all, notice how God is not party to the discussion. He's not involved in the discussion, but he is an object of the discussion. This is not speech to God or with God, but about God. God is treated as a third person. This is already a step away from God. We might also notice how the permission and the prohibition are being mixed up. In the serpent's speech, the prohibitions are multiplied and the abundant permission is completely forgotten. But the woman catches it. She says, no, 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 that's not quite right. She says, God said we could actually eat from any tree, but we mustn't eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will surely die. But even though she catches this confusion, it is enough to plant a seed of doubt in her mind. It plants an anxious question as she notices, perhaps for the first time, this limits and boundary of human freedom and human power. You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. Now, the matter of death had been mentioned by God, but it wasn't the main point. And it was not a threat, but a candid acknowledgement of the boundary to life but the boundary is now altered here to become a threat. And the emphasis is now on this threat of death. And when the serpent says, you will not surely die, in fact, you will become like God, the serpent is essentially saying, look, God's a paper tiger, an idle threat, a literary hypothesis. 
So if we just step back for a moment, we can see the picture the serpent has painted. The serpent has painted a picture of a very petty God who jealously guards his secrets and is eagerly punishing anyone who, who tries to discover his secrets. This is the God of prohibition who threatens us with death, but now we suspect is not actually able to carry out his threat of death against us. And with this comes the suggestion that the only way to get real power and real freedom is to circumvent this petty, secretive deity and become autonomous, utterly independent individuals. Well, this is an incredibly insightful story. Because in the popular telling and popular understanding of this story, the way this story is usually remembered and circulated, very little attention is actually given to the vocation, the invitation to share in God's work, to care for creation, that, that we're entrusted with this incredible task. And very little attention is given to the gift of abundant permission to eat from any tree. Well, it couldn't be any other way, could it? The story itself predicts that when readers are confronted with the reality of God, we will see him as a threat and as a limit to our freedom and power. And sure enough, in the telling of the story, the author creates the situation he describes because of the God of the garden is mostly remembered by me and by you as the one who prohibits and threatens. And so one of the points of this story is to help us examine how deeply the roots of this idea have grown into our own hearts. So how do we answer this question? How would we know if this idea has taken a hold of us and if we're in its grip? Well, this story does something interesting. It intertwines the reality of God with the reality of, of each other. Once we start to view God in this way, the story suggests chillingly, we will start to see each other this way too. God says to Adam and Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Desire here has the idea of desire to control and rule over also implies the same type of harsh control. Adam had once said when he saw Eve for the first time, you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. What a picture of oneness. And God had said a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two, the two shall become one flesh. There's this picture of oneness. But now this picture of oneness has been radically changed. Now they see themselves as quite separate, autonomous individuals who view each other and view other people as either advancing or standing in the way of my freedom and my power. I've often sat with couples in counseling who circle each other wearily, suspicious of each other's motives, perceiving a competition between themselves, concerned that their spouse is really trying to pull one over on them or get the upper hand. Perhaps they're trying to get ahead at their expense. They see themselves as autonomous individuals, utterly separate from each other, who must maintain their autonomy at all costs, because that, so they think, is the source of their freedom and the source of their power. 
And so the relationship, the marriage, is reduced to a series of calculations and constant analysis. And of course, it's not just marriages, is it? What I've just described happens in all sorts of other relationships. But what alternative is there? What alternative are we offered in this story? If we're not meant to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is God asking Adam and Eve to remain ignorant? Is that the alternative? Is that the choice set before them? It's a choice between knowledge that will allow them to calculate and analyze so that they can defend their freedom and power, or naive ignorance, which could, which could of course lead them to being stripped of their power and freedom. And if those are the choices put before us, are we supposed to choose ignorance over knowledge? Well, if eating from the tree of knowledge is understood as an assertion of our own autonomy to gain more freedom and power, which is what we've been saying this morning, then the choice here is actually not between knowledge and ignorance, but between suspicion and trust. Think again about a marriage. I've lost count of the couples who I've led through the wedding ceremony. I've done many now, but uh, each time couples go through that ceremony, they make promises, they take vows, and then they exchange rings as a sign and reminder of the promises and the vows that they've just taken. All that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I share with you. I will be faithful to you in sickness and in health for rich or for poor, for better or for worse, until death do us part. Before COVID hit, uh, the last wedding I did was the wedding of our friends, Mary and Richie. And it occurred to me that as they were going to make those promises to each other, that's really only half of what needed to happen. Because you see, it's all very well one person saying it and, and maybe meaning it with every fiber of their being. But if those vows, those promises are going to have their power, well, as you take vows and make promises, you're not just saying to each other, I love you, I'm devoted to you, I am for you. But you have to receive those vows from each other. And, and as you receive those vows, you are also saying, I trust that you love me. I believe you are devoted to me. I know in my innermost being that you are for me. And I'll ask you the same question that I asked Mary and Richie in their ceremony. Could you imagine the confidence that we might have, the security we would enjoy, the ease with which we would face life? I'm not saying that life would be easy, I'm just saying we would face life with a distinctive kind of ease if we could trust each other this way. If, if we could trust each other this way. I believe Christ is calling us to become this sort of community. And perhaps the question is not, can we trust other people this way? Can we trust each other this way? But are we, am I the kind of person who can be trusted that way? And this brings us to a sort of catch-22. We can't be people worthy of that kind of trust if we are constantly trying to defend our own power and defend our own freedom 
by constantly analyzing each relationship, calculating people in terms of how they advance or stand in the way of my freedom and power and asserting my own autonomy. That kind of person is not to be trusted. But if I don't calculate and analyze and assert my own autonomy, then surely I'll be vulnerable and my own power and freedom might be threatened. But then again, if I'm calculating and analyzing and asserting my autonomy to protect my power and freedom, then I'm not to be trusted. But if I don't assert my own autonomy and it's around and around and around it goes. So what should we do? Well, I'll just close by returning to that scene from the desert where Jesus is being tempted. And I'll place it once more alongside that scene in the garden. Listen carefully. And I think what we will hear is Jesus resetting the game and establishing an entirely new set of rules. Instead of asserting his own autonomy, Jesus begins with a realistic assessment of his own vulnerability. And in that vulnerability, he chooses to trust God. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, said Jesus to the devil in the wilderness. You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test, said Jesus to the devil in the wilderness. You will be as God, said the serpent to the woman in the garden. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, said Jesus to the devil in the wilderness. <laughs>